0: Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. So let grace abound, Lord. We're under grace, let it come like a waterfall. On us now as we open the word and attempt to clarify the battle strategy against this pretender to the throne of our lives, sin. And I pray for new dimensions of liberty, freedom for your people this morning. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus said. And so, Father, grant liberty, freedom, freedom. From the truth of Romans 6:11 to 14, now I pray. Holy Spirit, come, I ask, and do your sanctifying work. Teach our minds and transform our hearts. Humble us under your mighty hand, that in due season we may be exalted. Guard us from the deceptions of sin and the devil. Grant that truth would hold sway here. People would be delivered from lifelong bondage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the battleground of these texts, these verses I mean, and the participants, and I want to review that briefly with you so that you can be up to speed if you weren't here last week or even if you've forgotten. There are eight observations from these verses as far as the battleground and the participants in this warfare. Number one, there is a throne or a reign. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 12. Verse 12 again, there's a challenger to the throne. Sin, do not let sin reign. You've got one who reigns, don't let him reign. Verse 12 again, there's a castle, that's my image, not Paul's, where sin threatens to reign, namely the human body. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Fourth, Again in verse 12, there are servants in the castle that may go over to the other side of the enemy, join the conspiracy, and become enemy agents in the castle against the king. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Desires. Desires are supposed to be good for us. They're supposed to give us guidance and serve us. And when they are taken captive by the enemy's sin, they can become... Seditious behind the castle walls agents of the enemy. Number six, verse 13, there is a true king, God. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of righteousness, but present yourselves to God. God. As those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. So he's the one who's on the throne. Sin is pretending and is uh, rebelling and leading a conspiracy with your desires and turning them against you and trying to get on the throne. Seventh, there are weapons in the castle like cannons pointing outward to do the work of God and they can be turned around and shoot at the throne. Do not go on presenting your members. Now, it's the members of your body that are these weapons members of your body, that is, hands and eyes and ears and feet and sexual organs and tongue and other members of your body. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons. The word translated instruments in your version is literally weapons, weapons of unrighteousness. Don't let them turn the cannons around and shoot at the throne but present yourselves to the throne, to God, as alive from the dead, so that they keep shooting outward against sin and become weapons of righteousness. Eight, there's a constitutional authority here called grace, not law. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are under, not under law, but under grace. That verse we will not get to this morning, but we'll take it up in the part of the following text next week. So we saw not only the eight participants and lay of the land of the battlefield, we also saw how the enemy works. We described it briefly. It goes something like this Sin is the enemy here, attacking. He's a power. He's not just a little thing you do. He's a massive agent and power in your life, like a rebel or like a pretender, a conspirator to the throne of your life. And the way he does his work mainly is seditiously taking desires captive, which are meant for our good, and distorting them and corrupting them and turning them around so that they go in and take captive a member of the body, some piece, and then the body becomes an instrument not of serving the throne, but of serving the agent or the pretender sin. So we talked about desires for food, desires for drink, desires for sex, desires for rest. When they're tacked and they're distorted by sin, then these desires which are meant to be good, meant to serve us and to be an honor to God, become Judas desires, Delilah desires, betrayers, rather than servants in the castle of the body. And then we become complicitous when we yield to those desires and hand over our body parts eyes, ears, tongue, hands, feet, sex organs, vocal cords, to serve those desires and their new master, sin. Now, how does sin succeed at this? How does it get the upper hand in this way? And the answer was and is sin succeeds at this by taking our desires and corrupting them and then making them appear through deceit very compelling. It turns desires that are supposed to be servants into traitors and then it makes those desires look very very satisfying and rewarding. So they lie to us. It's the way war works. If you get behind the enemy lines you lie. You don't tell the truth about what's going on on the other side. You lie. And so if, if Satan can take captive a desire for food or a desire for drink or a desire for rest or a desire for sex or a desire for friends and distort it and make it ugly, it'll send it back in and it'll lie to you. You do it my way. You go my way. You satisfy me now in the form that I am presently in and you will be really happy. It'll feel so good. And that's the lie. It's a half-truth because sin does feel good. And some of you may be sitting there right now saying, frankly, I would rather be there than here. But I'll tell you, and your own conscience bears witness, you don't need anything more than your conscience. Yes, it feels good short-term. And then comes the remorse, then comes the misery, then comes the guilt, then comes the shattered family, then comes the ruined career, then comes the late night grieving, and then, in the end, if you haven't learned to fight at all, then comes hell. Which is why Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin sure they're pleasures. Nobody's arguing that. Go do your thing if you want to, but it's going to fly away. Guilt and pain are gifts of God to warn us that the pleasures of sin are suicidal. Though they may feel good in the moment. Ephesians 4.22, the old man, it says, is corrupted with desires of deceit. You see, there it is explicit. These these desires which are meant to serve us and be friends to us and enrich our lives. God didn't create us with desires just to give us trouble. They are to be friends to us and enrich our lives and they are taken captive and distorted and corrupted by sin and then made desires of deceit. And the way they succeed is by deceiving us, lying to us. This lying to you that just punch that little mouse button and get that nude up on the screen or, 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 or whatever your besetting sin may be, it's a lie. Your own conscience tells you it's a lie. And we must learn that it's a lie. Or 1 Peter 1.14 refers to the desires of your former ignorance. Desires prosper where you are ignorant of their payoff. If you are duped by their lie that this little short-term pleasure is worth it all, then you're ignorant. And a sermon, or let's just say a text like this, is intended to fix that. Ignorance kills. So sin takes over the desires, makes liars out of them, they promise satisfaction and happiness, and they deliver cheap, fleeting, shallow Stimulation that leaves us less content, less peaceful, less hopeful, more guilty, more restless, more discouraged, more enslaved. Learn this so that you can defeat the lie in the moment with truth. Learn this. They'll lead to death in the end. Verse 21 of this chapter says... The outcome of those things is death. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against your soul. Now there's the image in the Bible. I'm not just making it up. This war that's going on here. So sin... This power, this insidious power in our lives comes in, takes captive a a legitimate desire, distorts it, corrupts it, ruins it. And now that desire behind the lines, in the castle, as a former friend, lies to us. Judas desires. Judas desires. And makes war on our soul. And would kill us if we don't learn this text, if we don't learn warfare, the way the Bible teaches warfare. When I got to this point in my preparation, I thought, you know, some people are going to be sitting there at this point thinking with their fingers pointed at other people about big, bad, gross sins. Adultery, fornication, stealing, killing, something big, ugly. You know what the Bible says is the most dangerous member of your body to be taken captive by desire and sin? You think it's your sexual organs? Wrong. It's your tongue. It's your tongue. If there's one member of the body that kills and does worse damage in the world than any other member, including that one, that can shoot a gun or kick, it's the tongue. Listen to this. Listen to these words. This is James talking, the brother of Jesus. The tongue is a small part of the body. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. (gasps) What you want to talk about sex? You know? Say something serious. That's serious. This little member is set on fire by hell and sets on fire a forest... In a church, in a community, in a nation? Words, gossip, slander, lying, put-downs, criticism. Mm, The damage that is done when, when the tongue is taken captive by a deceitful desire, what a weapon of unrighteousness it does become. So, don't you be pointing your finger at anybody this morning. You got a tongue and it is not under control. Get it under control like this. That's what this text is about. You got sex problems? Let's get those fixed too. You got hand problems? Let's get those fixed. You got eye problems with the internet or magazines or whatever? Let's get that fixed. You got ear problems with ugly rock, acid music? Let's get that fixed. Let's, Let's not point our fingers because every one of us is a sinner and we got major battles to fight right here So we don't have to be going around saying, well, who's this text really about here? It's about me. That's who it's about. So, let's talk about the strategy. That was all review, suppose. Review. What's the strategy in this text for the fight? If that's the lay of the land, if that's the way the enemy does his work, what do we do? Now, what do we do? What's the strategy? All right, I got six strategies. But you know what? I've got to make clear to you the most amazing thing that's the most obvious. And uh, it's so obvious, it might go unmentioned, but it dare not go unmentioned. And the obvious is this. We're in chapter 6, not chapter 1. Five chapters about God, sin, and justification by faith alone, apart from works, has preceded this chapter on holiness. This takes your breath away for an American pragmatist. Come on, tell me what to do. Well, you wait five chapters, then I'll tell you what to do. Do you feel the force of this? This is chapter six. That's the main point of the morning. This is chapter six, not chapter one. Kids can get that. You got that kids? Five chapters precede chapter six. Anybody have a hard time understanding that? Six is preceded by one, two, three, four, five. That's important. That's really important. And therefore, if I'm going to talk strategy about triumph over sin this morning, we got to, we got to realize where we are in this book. And we are in chapter 6. And before us has gone the work of Christ in history on our behalf. Five chapters to help us see why justification by faith is essential for the foundation of doing battle with sin. Justification by faith alone is foundational for sanctification. That's the rhyming way to say it. Justification is foundational for sanctification. Chapters 1 to 5 precede chapter 6. You cannot fight sin successfully until your sins are forgiven. Say it another way. The only sin that you can triumph over in practice is a sin that Christ has died for on your behalf. Say it another way. If he had not died to take away our condemnation, we cannot make any progress in sanctification. There's an order here. It is gospel order. It is crucial order. There's an order here. First, remove my condemnation. Then begin my sanctification. I don't get holy in order to get justified. I get justified in order to get holy. That's five different ways I've said it now. I hope you get it. Because it makes or breaks whether you're a Christian or not. The whole world is into moral rearmament. But they're not Christian. Christ fought my sin battle first 2,000 years ago and won it for me. Now, in Him, I can make some headway with this thing. Without Him, without being in Him, no hope for John Piper or any of you... We are in chapter six, not chapter one. So let's outline the strategy. Strategy one: Christ died for your sin. And yes, you got to start there. Christ died for your sins. Romans three twenty-five. God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Or Romans five eight and nine. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, much more than now having been justified by his blood. As said once for all on Calvary 2,000 years ago, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Strategy one, God did. In your triumph over sin. Strategy one, God did. He sent his son He died for our sin. Don't skip that, because if you skip it, Satan will defeat you with a hopeless and guilty conscience. And we talked about that several weeks ago. It's a guilty conscience that keeps many people from even trying to to defeat sin in their lives. They are so enslaved, they are so hopeless, they are so without any hope of getting relief from guilt that they say, What's the point? Justification has to solve that problem first. We have to be delivered from condemnation by the blood of Jesus so that we can even begin to make any progress in holiness. Strategy number two. When Christ died and rose, you died and rose in Him. Or to be more precise, when God looked on Christ's suffering on the cross... For sin. And then looked at Him rising from the dead. He saw His people in union. United to His Son. So that what He was executed for, you were executed for in Him. So that your execution is past for your sins. Your execution for your sins is over. Because He looked upon you as being in Jesus... When Jesus died so that the punishment He bore was your punishment being borne as it were by you because He's your substitute and your representative. I get that from verse six of chapter six. Our old self was crucified with Him or verse eight. We have died with Him. So the first two strategies of defeating sin in our lives are historical, outside ourselves. We didn't have anything to do with this whatsoever. It happened for us, to us, as God viewed us in Christ once upon a time, two thousand years ago. Strategy number three. God unites us to Christ by faith so that what was accomplished for us on the cross is applied to us in Christ by the Spirit. He unites us to Christ by faith. Chapter 6, verse 5. We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. He didn't just do it for us. God didn't just view it having been done for us. He now unites us to Christ so that what is true of Christ in his dying is true of us in him. How did he do that? 1 Corinthians 1.30 By God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By God's doing you are in Christ. God put you into Christ. And what did you have to do? What do you have to do? If you're sitting there this morning and you're wondering, am I in Christ? The answer is, do you believe? Do you trust? Or, put it this way. Looking on what he has done what He is, what He promises to do, and receiving that as a free gift, as the treasure of your life. That's faith. I'll say it again. Looking on what He has done for you in Christ, what He is for you in Christ, and what He promises to be and do for you in Christ, and receiving that, as a free gift and the treasure of your life, you are saved. You are in Christ. Let me just pause here and say something about a piece of that definition of faith. In most evangelism, and when we talk simply and briefly, we say, receive Christ. As many as receive Him, He gave power to become the children of God. That's true, that's absolutely right. But, you know, there's so much cheap, easy believism and false decision-making that I think we need to add the phrase, receive him as your treasure. Because that's what he means. It doesn't mean receive him as a pain in the neck. It doesn't mean receive him as a judge who's on your case banging you all the time. It doesn't mean receive him in any old way. It means receive him as a treasure. It says in first Peter two, to you who believe he is precious. That's the meaning of faith. Faith is a receiving of a treasure. Not a pain, not an enemy. A friend, a treasure, a satisfying precious jewel. You are more precious than silver. So when I define faith for you here and on through the rest of this book, I mean looking at what He's done for you, what He is for you, what He promises to be and do for you, and receiving all of that as a free gift And the treasure of your life, that's the way you get into Christ. And God does that. God works that. So it says God has put you into Christ. Now, strategy number four. When you are in Christ, by faith, God justifies you. That is, He forgives all your sins and imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Stand and wonder. He made Christ to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So as God reckoned to Christ my sin, which didn't belong to Him, He reckons to me Christ's righteousness, which didn't belong to me, so that Christ had an alien sin and I have an alien righteousness, and He bears my punishment and I get His rewards. That's goodness. That's really goodness. That's the gospel. So let's sum up the first four strategies. Christ died for our sins, number one. Number two, we died with him in God's eyes. Number three, God united us to him by faith. And number four, in union with Christ, we are justified. That is, our sins are already punished in Christ and his righteousness is made over to our account. And all of that precedes verse 11 and 10 of chapter Six, But now here we come to chapter 6. Strategy number 5. Here we're going to get near the, the front line battle with sin. And I believe strategy number 5 is simply an extension of the faith that I described a minute ago in strategy 4. Paul treats it separately, so I'll treat it separately. And here it is, strategy five is a mental and volitional, that's an act of the will, a mental and volitional act preceding direct engagement with temptation. I'll read it to you, this is verse 11. This is the mental volitional act that precedes direct engagement with temptation. It says, even so, consider yourselves. There's the word, consider. Consider. A mental and volitional. Reckon yourself. Consider yourself. This is a thought thing. This is a mind-heart thing. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now notice two things in this strategy five, which is a mental, volitional reckoning of yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. First thing to observe is that it is something you do with your reason and your will. Reckon something to be so. Reckon yourselves, it says, to be dead to sin and alive to God. Notice the words, even so, at the beginning of verse 11. You see those? Even so... Or just as, or however your version may have it. It's referring back to verse 10, where it says Christ died to sin and lives to God. Now, even so, as you are in Christ, united to Christ, bring your mind and your will into alignment with what Christ experienced and you experienced in him. Isn't it amazing? We're not even at temptation yet. And we've got five strategies Know yourself this way. Count this to be the truth. Bring your mind and your will into alignment. Think this way about yourself. Think this way about what happened to Jesus, what happened to you in Him. That's the first thing to observe about strategy five. It's an act of the mind and the will to think a certain way in alignment with what happened to you in Jesus. The second thing to observe is that It is in Christ. You see that phrase at the end of verse 11? Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is amazing. He is still at the objective level. He's not at the temptation level yet. He is still at the level where you are getting yourselves identified as a soldier identified as a justified person identified in union with Christ and identified as dead to sin and alive all of that is happening before you fight this is the battle before the battle isn't it amazing how much precedes the conflict and one of the reasons we're so weak I just read this Yesterday, last night I think, maybe it was this morning, I was reading in Mission Frontiers about how much weakness there is in so many churches that have been planted around the church the last 50 years. And the analysis was, it's just evangelism, 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 evangelism. Just plant a church and teach them to evangelize and plant a church and teach them to evangelize. And they wonder why, 50 years into the church, they're all worldly We're in chapter 6. And we're just learning how to fight sin because of five chapters that have gone before as massive foundation that the world must know. So all you evangelists and all you missionaries and all you campus life workers and all you Bible study leaders in the marketplace Teach the people. Paul raided the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus and for 18 months, five hours a day, probably six days a week, he taught the people these things so that they would grow up into Christ and be redwoods and not cattails. It is in Christ that you are to reckon these things now. Bring your mind and your heart into alignment with objective reality out there in God's mind. Christ died for you. You died in Him. You are united with Him. You are justified in Him. Now, think this way. Fill your mind with these things. Think this way. Students, teenagers, think this way. I mean, there's nobody in your school talking about these things. Zero. Nobody is talking about these things. And is it any wonder then that if we, we teenagers, I mean you, (laughs) simply absorb our thought processes from the music and the conversation and the videos of the world, we lose. We die. We just sink to the lowest level. We become like everybody else because we just skipped Chapters 1 to 5. Well, that's for theologians, or that's for pastors, or that's for adults, or... It isn't. It's for children. And I praise God for curricula that care about the big things for children. Well, that's strategy number five. Now the last one, number six, quickly. Direct engagement. Here it is. Strategy six. When sin sends deceitful Judas desires to tempt you to present your members as weapons of unrighteousness, prefer another ruler. Strategy six. When sin distorts a desire, sends this insidious desire up to lay claim and lie to you and deceive you that this act that it wants you to do or this thought it wants you to pursue is going to reward you, at that moment, prefer another ruler. Now, why in the world do I say it like that? The t-shirt that says, just say no, the bumper sticker that says, just say no, is not a Christian t-shirt. Because five steps go before, just say no. Five massive steps go before, just say no. Just say no is pagan morality. It's atheism. Five massive steps precede, say no. Oh, we say no. When Judas' desire of lust comes, we say no. When Judas' desire of covetousness comes, we say no. When sin attacks and creates a Judas' desire for alcohol or nicotine or marijuana or crack cocaine, we say no. When sin attacks with a Judas' desire for retaliation and gossip, we say no. There's a real engagement of our will. We choose, you choose, choose to say no. But oh, so much more. Oh, so much more is the foundation of that choosing. There's one more thing to say in verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its Desires. Sin is attacking through desires. Judas desires. And we're called to choose against them. Don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. It's appeal to our will. Do something now. Do something. Use your mind and your will. No, I will not let you rain. No, I will not push that button. No, I will not take that drink. No, I will not speak that word. I will not. You engage. You will. You choose. But pause with me in one last minute and ask what is choosing? What is it? How does it happen? What is choosing to say no? My answer to that is choosing is preferring. To choose is to prefer one thing over another thing. Choosing is to prefer one thing over another thing. And if God is going to get the glory in our lives, choosing against sin must be because we regard God and what He is and promises as preferable. Preferable. If we don't, He gets no glory in our just saying no. If we just say no and don't say yes to the infinite preferableness of God in his way, he gets no honor. You get honor, moral, heroic, willpower person that you are, but he gets no glory. Isn't that why the text says you are dead to sin and its desires, that is, they don't look preferable to you anymore. And isn't that why it says positively you are alive to God because He looks preferable to you now than pornography or drugs or laziness or whatever the Judas desire may happen to be at the moment. In other words, the frontline battle against sin which glorifies God is founded on a massive foundation of the forgiveness of all of our sins and the imputation to us of righteousness and at the practical frontline level with the experiential death to the preferability of sin and life to the preferability of God. When you meet sin, you win to the degree that you have looked upon God and all that he has done for you and counted him precious and a treasure so that he is preferable to that deadly lying Judas desire. And then you say no, but you don't just say no. You say no because you say, Christ is my all. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I wouldn't bring reproach upon my Christ. I wouldn't turn away from my Christ to have this little fleeting pleasure. This is a battle of dying to the promises of sin, the preference of sin, and coming alive... To the promises of God, and the preference of God, and the beauty of God, and the desirability of God, and the treasure of God. That's the battle of Bethlehem Baptist Church. That's why we're Christian hedonists to the core. We will fight this thing on the positive end, because you can't win it on the negative end. You can't just say no to the power of sin. It will master you every time. You must say yes. You must say yes with five chapters of wooing and winning and laboring to help you realize God is for you. Let's pray. Oh God, make us victorious today. Get victory in people's lives today. May. Years of bondage to pornography go today. May bondage to alcohol go and bondage to drugs go and bondage to laziness go and bondage to fear go and bondage to the need of people's approval go today as you show yourself preferable to all these Judas desires that take us captive and make our members weapons of unrighteousness. Why don't you stand for the benediction? Oh, Father in heaven, I commend this people to you for your grace now. And I bless them in your name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and show Himself so infinitely beautiful and desirable that sin no longer reigns. In our mortal bodies. And all the people said. Amen. You're dismissed.